So I'm backing up into chapter 2 to remind us that Peter is writing to Christians living in the first century under the rule of Rome, and they were Christians who were living in a very hostile environment for followers of Jesus. It was very dangerous to follow Jesus there in the first century. And so Peter's writing to them to encourage them, and really in this section to let them know that their conduct, the way they live, if they're living in a way that is honorable amongst unbelievers, that their lives can actually have an impact on people that don't know Christ. And what's interesting about this is we also are living in a day and age where following Jesus is um, becoming something that isn't so popular. We are living in a culture that is becoming more and more um, hostile toward followers of Christ and toward the person of Jesus himself. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. Up until about 12 or 13 years ago, being a Christian in this country was predominantly seen as a positive thing. In fact, it really wasn't that difficult to be a Christian here in the United States of America. It didn't cost you anything. And oftentimes, um, it was even seen as an advantage to be a follower of Jesus Christ living in this country. But that has been changing rapidly, hasn't it? For example, when I was growing up, and I was in high school in the mid-70s and 80s, um, Believing in a God who created the world was something that wasn't really looked down upon, even going to a public school. It was something that was actually accepted by much of the majority as the norm. But today, going to school at a secular educational institution and believing in creation, you'll get laughed at for believing in a fairy tale. When I was growing up, the biblical view of sexuality and gender and same-sex attraction and, and sex outside of marriage and extramarital sex, like uh, adultery, all of that, the biblical view of all of that is that it is wrong, that it's sin, and that was a viewpoint that was really a socially acceptable viewpoint when I was growing up. In fact, the only people who engaged in that type of activity were those who were rebellious and those who were deemed as being promiscuous and those who engaged in that type of thing did it mostly in secret and not out in the open. But today, if you are a Christian who holds the biblical view on those type of things, you will at best be looked down upon, and at worst, you'll be maligned and attacked. And we see this happening all over the place. Christians being sued for holding a biblical viewpoint on sexuality and marriage. Christians being fired from their jobs for holding those type of viewpoints. We live right now in what is being called a cancel culture, and our culture is trying to cancel God out of its culture. That's the culture that we're living in today. It's getting more and more hostile toward followers of Jesus. But Peter here is writing to these people that were enduring a great deal of persecution, and he's writing them to say, hey, the way you conduct yourself amongst unbelievers, if you do it in a way you know, that is full of honor, 
if you do it in ways that is praiseworthy, your life can actually draw them to Jesus. And so in chapter 2, he talks about how we are to live and conduct ourselves in relationship to the government, how we are to conduct ourselves in the workplace. And then last week we saw where he moved into talking about how we should conduct ourselves in the home as husbands and wives. And last week we looked at the beginning of this section. In fact, I want to read it again. Chapter 3. Verse 1, he says, Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. So this was the context of last week. He was talking about women, Christian women, married to somebody who wasn't a believer or somebody who wasn't following the word of God, and he's giving them insight into how their conduct, if they approach that in the right way, that they can actually influence and impact their unbelieving husband toward Christ. Well, today we come to verse 7, where his focus is going to be on the husband. Follow along as I read. He says, husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, once again, I want to say this. Peter is not giving us here an exhaustive teaching on the subject of marriage like Paul does in the book of Ephesians. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul dedicates 11 verses to talking about the husband. And here, Peter, he's only giving us one, but what he says is important. And for those of you, again, who are not married here, who are single, who would be tempted to kind of tune out, I want to encourage all you guys to listen up because what Peter says here to the husband about how to approach his wife can also give you great insight into how to approach your sisters in the body of Christ. And there's three things that Peter, three main principles that he wants the Christian husband to understand. If you're taking notes, it's this, that submission is mutual, that understanding is necessary, and number three, that honor is essential. And we're going to look at those three principles today. We'll start with the first one, that submission is mutual. Notice he says there, husbands likewise. Everybody say likewise. The word likewise is connecting us to the section that came before it there in chapter 2. Where, and if you notice, he says the same thing to the wife in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, wives, likewise. And in chapter 2, the whole focus about our conduct amongst unbelievers is Peter was teaching us that, that we are to live in submission to the government, that we are to live in submission in the workplace where God has placed us. And then he ended the whole section by talking about the example, really the ultimate example of submission that we see in Jesus and how Jesus submitted himself to his heavenly father, to, to his father and to the mission that the father had laid out for him. And, and so that was the, the focus, how he ends chapter two and then he begins chapter three by saying, 
saying, wives, likewise. In other words, here, this is where you are to be like Jesus. Walk in submission to your husband. And then he describes what that is to look like. And that was the focus of our study last time. And then here, in verse 7, he says to the husband, husband, likewise. Just like Jesus, just like we were seeing our example in chapter 2, husbands, likewise. Here's what it looks like for you to walk in the same way of Jesus. Here's what it looks like for you to walk in submission. And this is the thing that we need to understand. The Bible teaches a mutual submission in marriage. It's something that is found throughout Scripture. And that's surprising to some men, because a lot of men, their favorite verse in the Bible, it's the only one they have memorized, is Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. They love to quote it. A lot of men are that way. But they ignore the verse that comes before it. Verse 21, that says this, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And there Paul is describing a mutual submission in marriage, where you have two people who are individually submitted to one another because they are first submitted to Jesus. But it goes back even further than that. You see, in the book of Genesis, with the first marriage, God creates man and woman, the husband and the wife, and it says this, and God blessed them, plural, the two of them, and God said to them, so he's giving them a mission, be fruitful and multiply and take care of the garden that I've placed you in. And we learn from this that in God's eyes, marriage was always meant to be a partnership with defined roles, where husbands and wives are working together and submitted to each other because they're first submitted to God. There was a man who was driving down a country road. And as he comes to this country road, there's a bridge. And before the bridge is a sign that says, yield to oncoming passengers or oncoming cars. And so this guy, you know, looks and wants to make sure there's no other cars coming and he crosses, you know, the bridge. Well, later on in the day, he's coming back on the other side and he notices there's a sign on the other side that also says yield to oncoming traffic. And he thought, I thought that yield sign was on the other side. And so he drives back, you know, over the bridge and he looks back and sure enough, the the sign yield was on both sides. And then it dawned on him in order to avoid a head-on collision, both drivers have to yield. Well, the same thing is true in marriage. If you want to avoid head-on collisions in your marriage, if you want to avoid butting heads with your spouse, there has to be a, you both need to learn to yield. And that is so much easier when you first both are yielded, you're submitting yourselves to Jesus first as individuals, and then learning how to submit to one another. So the first thing that Peter points out here is that submission is mutual. The second thing he points out is that understanding is necessary. Notice again, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you need to know your wife. You need to study her. You need to get to know her. You need to know what makes her tick. You need to figure out how her mind works. And a lot of the men right now in the room are getting really, really scared. (laughs) She's complicated. You know, how do I do that? But really, we need to learn her gifts, her desires, her talents, her hopes, and her dreams. 
And I think there are three main things that a husband needs to understand about his wife. Number one, he needs to understand her unique God-given design. You see, when God created Adam, he looked at Adam and said that it wasn't good that Adam was alone. So then he made Eve. He made him a wife. And it's interesting, a lot of people have debated why did God actually make Eve. I want to give you the four top uh, explanations or or opinions on that in, in reverse order. So number four, this is why God made Eve. God knew that if the world was to be populated, there would have to be someone to bear children because men would never be able to handle it. Okay. Number three, God knew that Adam would never make a doctor's appointment for himself. So he created him a wife. Number two, the Bible says that it's not good for man to be alone because he always ends up getting in trouble when he's by himself. And then the number one reason is that God, when he had finished creation and he made Adam, he stepped back and he scratched his head looking at Adam and thought, I can do better than that. (laughs) Seriously, though, when God did make Eve, he gives her an incredible title. He calls her, in Genesis chapter 2, the helper. Some of you ladies, you don't like that title. Like, oh, don't, don't call me the helper, but you need to like this title because it's an amazing title. In fact, that word, it's the word Izer Konegdo. Everybody say that, Izer Konegdo, in the Hebrew. And it is a word that is used 21 times in the Old Testament. Now get this, 19 of those 21 times, it's used of God. He's called the Azer Konegdo. He's referred to as the Azer Konegdo in Psalm 10, verse 14, when he's referred to as the father or the helper of the fatherless, the Azer Konegdo. He's called David's helper and deliverer in Psalm 70, verse 5. He's called Israel's shield and helper in Deuteronomy 33. 19 of the 21 times that word is used to describe God and twice In the book of Genesis, it's used to describe the wife. She has been given by God this incredible title. The word is there means a helper of the same nature or a corresponding character. And the word connecto literally means as in front of him or beside him. So in relationship to to the wife, it describes her as her husband's essential comrade, possessing a strength and a power that is comparable to her husband. In other words, she has been given certain strengths and abilities that are meant to complement her husband. That the wife has been given this unique title and role by God. And so a wise husband is going to realize that his wife is gifted in this unique way. And she's been gifted by God, given this title and this role by God in order to work with him so that they can serve the Lord together. So first of all, a husband needs to understand his wife's unique role and place divinely placed in his life by God for a reason and a purpose. Number two, though, he needs to understand that they are different, different in many ways. In fact, men and women, they actually think differently. How many of you know that? You guys don't understand? You, you and your husband, you and your wife, you think differently. In fact, in Solomon, 
who before he went off the rails and, you know, kind of turned into a weird dude, he was married to this one gal that he really, really loved. And in Song of Solomon, he, he has all these things that he says to compliment his wife. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 3, he says this about his wife and her design. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Now you're thinking, what the heck does that mean? Well, Solomon had a lot of weird sayings to compliment his wife. For instance, he, he said this, that his wife, that her belly was like a round goblet or her belly was like a heap of wheat. Now listen, listen guys, especially you young guys. Unless your wife is pregnant, you never ever want to say that her belly is round or that it looks like a heap of anything, okay? <laughs> you understand that, okay? But that worked in Solomon's day. Like, like she would be like, oh, that's so sweet because it was like a compliment. So we need to understand, you know, kind of our modern language, how to compliment our wives. But, but this thing, what he says here in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 3, about her temples, the temples behind her veil, is very, very interesting, being like a piece of pomegranate. And remember this, the Bible is inspired by God. And so here's what's happening Here's what God's doing. He's given Solomon insight about his wife's brain. You see, if you open up a pomegranate, you see that there are many sections inside. There are little ones and there are big ones. And so God is describing here what a woman's mind is like. It's complex. It has many sections, big and small. Now what's interesting, modern science backs up Solomon's insight. We know that the brain contains two hemispheres. There's a left and a right. And neuroscientists tell us that women typically have a larger pathway and connection between those two hemispheres so that information from a woman flows a lot more freely. To compare those, that pathway, you could say a man's pathway between the hemispheres is like a footpath. A woman's pathway is like a superhighway. That's why she's such a great communicator. And part of God's design for the wife and being the Ezer Konegdo is that she's going to be most of the time good at communicating. But listen, ladies, how you communicate is really the key. How you communicate. You see, you can communicate in a way that enhances and inspires and encourages your husband, or you can communicate in a way that condemns and criticizes and corrupts. So how you communicate is very, very important. And a wise husband who is dwelling with his wife and understanding is going to realize that her input can be very, very valuable, and he's going to seek that out. He's going to value her opinion. But here's the thing. Women and men don't just think differently. They actually communicate differently. Women are generally more in touch with their emotions. They're more verbal. And so because of that, they're better at forming deep relationships. Whereas men are much better at nonverbal tasks. That's why we have a remote control. Um, <laughs> but men in general... They like the bottom line, right? Men want you to cut to the chase. I don't need all the details, just cut to the chase, right? Am I right, guys? 
But women, they want details and more details and more details. Which is one of the reasons why a lot of communication experts tell us that the average woman speaks 25,000 words per day, while her husband only speaks 12,500 words, half of that. And here's the thing, chances are your husband is going to speak 12,495 of his words before he gets home from work. So he comes home and he's only got five words left. And for a lot of ladies, they haven't even started yet. (laughs) And so he's thinking, why does she talk so much? And she's thinking he never says anything at all. So this is where, guys, we need to learn how to communicate. We need to learn when to talk. We need to learn how to listen. And ladies, please hear me on this. Please. Ladies, don't expect your husband to be a mind reader. Don't expect him, I'm going to say that again, your husband to be a mind reader. I don't know why, especially Christian women, tend to assume my husband should know what I'm thinking. He should know how I feel. He should know what's going on in my head. Listen, ladies, please, don't do that. Your husband needs you to spell it out for him. He does. He needs you just to tell him what you're thinking and how you're feeling and what you need because he's not going to be able to read your mind. And things will work so much better if you'll just spell it out for him. You know, I learned in my relationship with my wife, Denise, that there are times when my wife just needs to vent. And not necessarily at me, um, you know, or about me. I mean, it just could be about anything. And sometimes she just needs to vent. She just needs to get off of her chest. And I have learned, because early on when she would start to do that, I would put on my you know, pastor hat, my counselor hat, and I want to fix things. So I would be like, okay, you know, and I'd I'd want to fix it. Well, I have learned there are times she just needs to vent. So I will literally, I've done this. I'll I'll ask her. She'll start going and I'll say, "Just, just stop for a second. I just need to know, do you want me to do anything or you just want me to listen right now? Okay. And sometimes she says, no, I just need to, I just want you to listen. I'm like, okay, great, go for it, you know? And I'm like just ready to, to, to listen. And sometimes she just needs that. She just needs to, to vent, and she just needs me to listen to her. Now, I will say this, guys. When she's done venting, this will make all the difference in the world. Again, I learned this the hard way. Pray for her. Just pray for her. Oftentimes, I would walk away, and maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, come back and go, you know, I had to pray for you. And she'd, she'd tell me, you know, I already called so-and-so, one of her girlfriends, and she prayed for me. And I'd be like, oh, you know. <laughs> so I learned that the hard way. It makes all the difference in the world. Just, just pray for her. So guys, you need to be willing to study your wife, to know how she thinks, what makes her tick. And you'll know that there are some things over the years and how she thinks and what makes her tick that's going to change with the seasons of life. It just happens. 
And you can view those changes as a drag. Like, why is my wife so complicated? Or you can see them as a great adventure. I look at my wife as I call her my beautiful mystery. Because she is a mystery to me. But I love mysteries. So it's fun to kind of see, like, okay, what's, what's going on? You know, last year, I started working on my master's in, in seminary. And it was something I wanted to do just to grow in, in my calling and also, you know, potential for open doors later on. And, and so if I, can, if I continue in this program, in two years, I'll have my master's degree. Well, I have been studying my wife, Denise, for 34 years now. And I still do not have a master's degree in Denisology, okay? <laughs> I don't have it, but I'm committed to spending the rest of my life learning and studying that woman. And it's a joy. It's actually a lot of fun. In fact, here's a true story. There was a man by the name of Tom. His family was going on a two-week vacation. And he decided, he made a private vow with himself that he was going to, over that two-week vacation, just really, really focus his attention on you know, loving his wife and catering to, to her wants and her needs, and even when you know, doing things with her that she wanted to do that maybe he wasn't even really interested in. And he committed himself to doing this. And so for the, almost the, the whole two-week time, it was getting to the end of it, he was doing that. And he actually found that this was, it was really sweet. It was really awesome. He was just loving his wife's reaction and how they were getting along and so he made another private vow to himself that he was just going to keep doing this well on the last night of their vacation his wife said to him and she just looked really concerned and she said is something wrong he says what do you mean she says is there something that you're not telling me he goes what are you talking about he says well you know Right before we went to the vacation, I went to the doctor, our family doctor, and I just want to know, did he tell you something about me that, that I don't know because you've been really nice to me these two weeks? Am I dying? <laughs> and he responded and he said, no, he laughed, he laughed. He said, no, honey, you're not dying, but I'm finally starting to live. And you know, I love that story because it really goes along with what Jesus said. Something that Jesus said, that if you apply this in your marriage relationship, it'll make all the difference in the world. You see, Jesus said this. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And if you allow that mentality to permeate your relationship with your spouse, to permeate your relationship with your wife. Guys, your marriage will be blessed and it will be vibrant. So first of all, submission is mutual. Second, understanding is necessary. And finally, number three, honor is essential. Now what does it mean to honor your wife? The word honor literally means to value her. The word honor describes how you would care for a precious gem. You value it. You're protecting it. So you're valuing your wife. You're, you're protecting her. You value her by showing appreciation for who she is and how God has made her, realizing that she has special gifts and talents that have been given to her by God. 
And it is a beautiful thing to see a Christian wife blossom under the encouragement of a wise husband. So I want to encourage you guys, don't hold her back. Let her be all that she can be for the glory of God. So you honor her by valuing her. You honor her by showing confidence the confidence that you have in her to take care of things. In other words, guys, don't be control freaks, but give her freedom to make decisions. And know this, there are going to be certain things that she's actually a lot better at than you. Let her flourish in those things. You know, it was about six years ago that my wife and I started our Thrive Marriage Ministry here at the church. And on those Tuesday nights, how many of you have been to one of our Thrive Marriage events? Um, Just amazing nights where we turn the sanctuary into a a banquet hall and we have some great speakers and a great meal. And and so God had given me a vision for this ministry and what it was supposed to, you know, look like. And it was just very, very clear. And so we put, you know, our hearts to making this happen. And here's what was interesting, though. On every single, and back then we used to do Thrive once a month, on the first Tuesday of every month. And on those nights, or on those days when we were getting ready for Thrive, my wife and I would always get in a fight. And the fight would center around how things were to be set up, and how things were to function and to run. And we had differing opinions about that. And so we would end up, you know, we'd be here at the church, and, you know, staff were around helping us, and we're, like, mad at one another. And, and by the time the evening was starting, we didn't even like each other, you know? And here we're leading this marriage event. But it wasn't until I finally came to the realization that, yes, the Lord had given me this vision for what this night was supposed to look like, but he had gifted my wife in knowing how to create an atmosphere that would be really, really special and would make those nights just wonderful. And so as soon as I, you know, quit being so stubborn and began to value her gifting and input and and had some wisdom to let her, you know, kind of run things and make things just way more beautiful than I ever would have made. That night became, for us, a great blessing rather than a burden, rather than a struggle. So it's understanding, guys, valuing her gifting and how God has has blessed her and gifted her. And so, guys, you value your wife, or you honor your wife by valuing her. You you honor your wife by respecting her, and you honor her by praising her. In Proverbs chapter 31, Solomon speaks about the virtuous wife and and, and the, the noble woman, and he says this about her, that she's industrious, that she's frugal, that she's generous and yet gracious, that he portrays her as a craftsman, as an artisan, as a business person, as a farmer and a manager. And he's speaking there in glowing terms like a guy who is just so proud of his wife. In fact, let me, he, he describes it in this way in verse 11 of Proverbs 31. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. And in verse 31, he says, give her the reward she has earned. She should be praised in public for what she has done. I love watching guys praise their wives on social media. I love it when I see guys in our church that post something 
glowing about their wife and just how blessed they are to be married to her and something about her that they really, really appreciate. Now, I will say this, though, guys. If you post things like that, you need to also live it out because actions speak louder than words. And if you post something really, really sweet, but you're not acting like that in person, it doesn't mean anything. But I love that. He praises her in public. It's a great way to let the world know that you love and appreciate her. Now, it's interesting. Peter describes two things that a husband needs to remember, though, about his wife if he is going to honor her well. The first is that he calls her the weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean? How is she weaker? Is she incompetent? No. Is she weaker emotionally? Not necessarily. Is she weaker spiritually? (laughs) No, oftentimes the wife is a lot stronger spiritually than her husband. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about physically. In fact, the word weaker there literally means without stenos in the Greek, which means without strength. It's primarily talking about how she is physically. She is physically weaker than her husband. And once again, this is by divine design. You see, God created men to have a certain hormone called testosterone, which makes his bone structure grow larger than a woman's. He has more fiber and muscle around his bones than a woman. Up to 40% of his body is in fact muscle, whereas only 23% of his wife's body is made up of muscle. A woman's blood contains more water and 20% fewer blood cells, which supply oxygen to the body, which is the reason why she gets tired more easily and can even be prone to faint. Now, some of you might think, well, my wife's a bodybuilder. She lifts weights. She's actually stronger than me. Well, though there are exceptions, okay? She wasn't designed that way. She made herself that way, and that's okay. But generally, the wife is weaker physically than her husband. And so a wise husband who is honoring his wife as the weaker vessel is going to make sure she doesn't get overextended. He's going to know and learn what her capacity is. He's going to understand that he can't push her too hard. That he needs to know when she needs a break, when he needs to just say, hey, let's, let's just stop now. Hey, I'm going to take you to dinner. Let's, let's get out of here. He needs to understand that about his wife. So he needs to, in order to honor her well, he needs to understand that she's the weaker vessel. And secondly, he needs to understand that she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. What does that mean? It means that she has been gifted by God. That she is a daughter of God. That the same grace that saved him is the same grace that saved her. That the same grace that sustains him is the same grace that sustains her. That the same grace that supports him in life is the same grace that supports her. And the husband who honors his wife in realizing that she has insights and understanding and has been blessed by God is one who is honoring her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And think of it this way. Suppose, guys, you inherited $10,000, but your wife inherited $10 million. Are you going to want to have joint check accounts, checking accounts, 
joint bank accounts? Absolutely, right? Because you want to be a part of that. Her fellow heir, you want to be a part of her inheritance. Well, in the same way, a husband, you can enjoy the grace and the beauty of life if you see your wife as being rich in the things of God. She's a fellow heir. She's been graced by God. And finally, Peter tells us the result of dwelling with your wife in understanding and honoring her is that it results in an effective prayer life. He says that your prayers will not be hindered. And here Peter is calling attention to something that we often forget or deny, that there is always a connection between your relationship with your wife and your relationship with God. That you as a husband or a wife, for that matter, cannot be right with God and be wrong with your spouse. And the idea of prayers being hindered, think of it this way, it's like a car being out of tune. It's just not working properly. That's what happens to our prayers. It's also spoken of in the idea, it's a a military term that describes an army digging a trench in the road in order to stop the enemy's advance. And it really describes what Satan will do in your spiritual life that he will seek to drive a wedge between you and your spouse because if he can do that, he can then drive a wedge between you and God. And this is the thing that we need to understand. When things like unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment take place in a marriage, they don't just affect you and your spouse or your kids. There's collateral damage in that. But it can affect your relationship with God as well. And oftentimes as a pastor, I watch married people make horrible decisions in times of conflict, in times when they're estranged. And one of them will say to me, you know, I I prayed about it and I had a peace. And I'll say to them, I don't think that peace was from God because what you're about to do totally contradicts what he says in his word. And so Peter is wanting us to understand a right relationship in our relationship with our spouse keeps us in a right relationship with God. But when we're in a wrong relationship with our spouse, it's going to have an effect. It's going to make you out of tune. It's going to clog things up in your relationship with the Lord if you're harboring these things in your heart. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Rob, I understand what you're saying. But this is hard. What you were saying last week to the wives and now what you're saying today to the husbands, this is hard stuff. And I would agree with you 100%. I've been married to my wife for 34 years, happily married to my wife for 34 years, but it has been hard. It's been super enjoyable, but it's hard. You know why? Because marriage takes work. A good marriage takes time. It takes work. It takes effort. And so we have to work at it. But here's something that I want you to understand. Paul says something in the book of Ephesians. In fact, I'm going to ask the band to come up right now as I kind of wrap this up. But in the book of Ephesians, before Paul says one word to the husband, 
about his role in the marriage, or before he says one word to the wife about her role in the marriage, he makes this statement in verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this whole section really begins in verse 15 when he's talking to us about walking in wisdom. And he's talking about walking in wisdom in our relationships. And our marriage relationship is one of the most important ones. He says, look, God does not want you to be unwise, but he wants you to understand what his will is in this area. Peter's given us insight here as to what is the will of the Lord in this area for us. So he says, don't be unwise. And then he says this, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. You see, this is how the carnal person deals with the struggles and the hardships of marriage. They drink. They want to numb the pain. They want to numb the frustration that they're feeling in their relationship. So they turn to alcohol or they smoke pot or they do something like that to kind of numb the pain. God says, don't do that. Don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And literally, this is how it reads, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Daily. And here's why this is so important to understand. Here's why the Lord inspires Paul to write this before he starts getting into marriage. It's because everything that he says there in Ephesians chapter 5 about marriage goes against your natural tendencies as a husband or wife. Because of the fall, ladies, your natural tendency is not to want to submit to your husband. According to Genesis chapter 3, your natural tendency is to want to rule over him not submit to him. And husbands, your natural tendency is not to want to submit to your wife or to serve your wife. You want to be served by your wife. That's our natural tendency because of the fall. But God is not wanting us to live naturally, but supernaturally. And so he's given us his Holy Spirit. This is what we were celebrating two weeks ago at Easter. This is what it's all about. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And three days later, he rose again from the dead to give life to anyone and everyone who would put their faith in him. And he continues to seek to give us power to live out what God has put forth in his word for us, how he wants us to live. You know, it's been said that God's commandments are God's enablements. And that is so true. And so Paul says, hey, don't get drunk with wine. That's dumb. But be filled. Be continually, is literally how it reads, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's daily coming to that place that you recognize, Lord, I don't understand my wife. Help me. Lord, I'm not, I'm having a hard time submitting to my husband right now. Help me. And when we admit our need, he meets us with his power. It's like that song that we were singing today. Love that song that they sang today. Where it says that some men trust in their own wisdom. Some men trust in their own strength. Others trust in their own experience to figure things out. But he says, no, I'm going to trust in the Lord. Why? Because there is wonder-working power 
There is resurrection power. There is great redeeming power. In the name of Jesus, the Bible says that it's the name of Jesus that we are saved. That we confess with our mouth the name of Jesus. It changes everything. And it's through that power of God's Holy Spirit in our lives that we have that resurrection power, that great redeeming power, that wonder-working power available to us to walk and live in a way that brings honor to Him. So here's what I want to do today. I want us all to stand right now. For those of you who are married, guys, I want you to put your arm around your wife. And our worship team is going to lead us in just a moment in a song that I want you to make it your prayer today. Married or not, It's a prayer for a fresh filling of God's Spirit upon your life. And you know, worship is to be, in the Bible, it's described as a full body experience. That's why it tells us to clap our hands and to raise our hands. And so the way we raise our hands really speaks of what's going on in our hearts. Like, for instance, if somebody comes up to you and says, stick them up, what do you do with your hands? Put them like this, right? It's a way of saying, "I, I surrender. So when we raise our hands like this to God, we're saying, God, I surrender to you, and I surrender to your will. I surrender to your word. I surrender to who you are. And maybe today, that's how you need to be. You need to be like you haven't been. You've been like doing your own thing. You're like, God, I surrender. I'm surrendering me to you. But when we raise our hands like this, It's indicating to the Lord that we're ready to receive something. It's like a football player receiving a punt. You know, like, okay, here it comes. Like I'm saying, God, I'm I'm expecting. So I want to encourage you today, husband and wife, as we begin to sing this song, just put your hands up, however, where you're at today, either like this to receive or like this to say, I surrender, and just lift your hands today and just saying to God, God, fill me afresh with your spirit. Meet me right now in this moment, married or single, spouses here or not, to just say, God, here's my heart before you. And let's make this song our prayer as we wrap up our time today.